0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates.
1: Price and coverage match limited by state law. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes and make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair.
2: It's such an honor
0: to
1: present this next award.
0: And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes
1: to. And the Oscar goes to. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world mistake moonlight you guys won best picture
0: i'm katie rich the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and i'm here with our senior writer joanna robinson hi katie returning from vacation our film critic richard lawson Hello. Uh, and joining us for the first of what we hope will be many times, uh, a new addition to the Vanity Fair team, our Hollywood staff writer Cassie DeCosta. Hi, Cassie. Hi. Uh, it is so good to, I mean, you've only been here for like a month, so I feel like it's overdue for you to be here, but technically you're basically uh, <laughs> just getting on board. So anyway, thank you for, uh, for coming to join us finally. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, so I wanted Cassie to come on to talk about a lot of things, but specifically Mank. Which Cassie, you wrote a piece about for uh, VF a couple weeks ago and is out on Netflix at last this week. So we will talk about Mank later on. um, But then there's just kind of a big handful of things to talk about. There's movies that are coming out here and there, uh, including some on Netflix. And I wanted to start because, Richard, you have a a list of 10 of them, as uh, is the tradition. You have published your top 10 films of 2020 on December 1st, which is really an accomplishment this year because of how weird release schedules are. And I don't know what kind of like hoops you had to jump through to actually get this in on time. So before you can maybe get into what you put on that list, uh, how did putting together a top 10 go for you?
2: You know, it was actually kind of a nice experience because in trying to winnow down, you know, a bigger list, I realized, you know, actually there were a lot of interesting things that came out this year from January to now um, and, you know, through the end of the month. And some of them were your expected festival stuff from Sundance or whatever, but, other things were movies like Shithouse, this movie that would have been at South by. So I guess it would have technically been a festival movie. But maybe I wouldn't have reviewed or paid much attention to had I not, frankly, been scrambling every week to find something to write about to, <laughs> to keep my job, basically. <laughs> um, I think it's a deeper list in some ways than in normal years because it's not the same stuff that everyone else is. Putting on theirs. I mean, there are some of the same Minari and Nomad Land. And, you know, those are the nests are probably popping up on a lot of lists. But like, you know, even like a horror comedy like Freaky, like, I probably wouldn't have viewed it with quite the same, I don't know, holistic lens had um there been a glut of like awards season movies coming out at the same time in November. So, you know, it was a nice reminder that, like, despite everything, There were uh, a good number of movies that came out this year, including ones like First Cow and The High Note and The Kid Detective and that, that I couldn't put on a list of 10. You know, maybe it would have been on a list of 15.
0: Yeah, you're not including First Cow as maybe, like, film Twitter heresy this year. I feel seen, Richard. <laughs> I love First Cow, so we'll get there. But, I mean, you wrote a piece for the magazine um, for the most recent issue just about how this the weirdness of this year allowed these small movies to shine. And, you know, I see something like Shithouse, which we've talked about on the show earlier, but, like, it, it seems likely that that's something that might not have squeezed into your top ten in another busier year. So it really did give you a chance to, like— not just talk about movies you love, but, like, really boost them in a way that they wouldn't get to otherwise.
2: Yes, and I think that adds another interesting dimension to the list. I mean, some of the movies on there are not yet available for the viewing public to watch. You know, either they're getting a tiny qualifying release and then coming out next year sometime, or, you know, they're not on demand yet. But a decent number of them are, and they're, like, accessible now, whereas in sometimes in years past... I'm putting a movie on a list that people won't be able to see for like many more months in any capacity, you know? And so I like that this list hopefully is a little more accessible and it's something to bear in mind going forward. Not that I should like always adjust or any of us should really adjust our kind of assessment of things depending on when they're available. But like to kind of have a more communal experience when talking about the best whatever of the year. I mean, TV has that obviously uh, that advantage. Just to think about what people can see, have seen, I think it makes the conversation more interesting.
0: I want to give Cassie and Joanna a chance to quiz you about your list but I wanted to just applaud you for putting Bad Education on there um, which I think when it was bought by HBO at the Toronto Film Festival last year we didn't realize how much it would be distributed basically like every other movie this year like it's gonna, it was on HBO what's funny is Let Them All Talk is also on your list it's an HBO Max original it will be Oscar eligible Bad Education was Emmy eligible which just shows you how strange this year has been um, but Bad Education is there on your HBO Max app for anyone to watch it's wonderful and uh, the fact that you Refuse refused to consider television, I think was the right call.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, we had to have that tricky conversation about small acts and bad yeah. education. Um, there was a huge, well, huge for film Twitter kind of debate and TV <laughs> Twitter going on uh, this week about... It was like, a
3: crossover event, actually. <laughs> it was the
2: crossover event of the year. Um, and, you know, I... There's no perfect answer. I mean, Steve McQueen, the, the creator of the Small X films, has said these are five feature films. And, you know, I, I reviewed the first one, Mangrove, and Cassie's going to review some and Sonia Sarai is going to review some. And we are covering them like films. But the ultimate decision we made was, but they are being presented in the, both the UK and in the US as something of an of an interlocked series of things on more traditionally platforms were traditionally associated with television. So for only the purposes of list making, are we considering small acts television? And then Bad Education, I saw it at a big film festival. I saw it in Toronto in 2019. Uh, HBO bought it. It only played on television. There was an, no theatrical release ever planned for it, but it is a discrete, standalone two hours, um, not connected to anything else. So we decided that was not TV, but a movie. I mean, these distinctions are eroding by the day, it feels like. So maybe yeah. next year, we'll, it'll be a whole different story.
0: Yeah. Uh, Cassie and Joanne, do you want to uh, harass Richard by any of his choices? I don't, I don't want to harass him, but I'm, I'm just, I do. I love this list
3: because there's a lot on here that I haven't seen. And usually by the time top 10 lists roll around because of this podcast and everything else, like I will have seen the likely contenders. And there's like a couple on here that I have seen. You've got Minari and Ness, b- uh, both of which I loved so much really high. And that's great. Um, and that makes me excited to check out the ones that I haven't seen that are on here. And, you know, it's just to exactly your point, Richard, is that you got to highlight a bunch of movies that maybe, uh, you know, the the larger consensus isn't talking about. And, and that's like, isn't that the best thing we want to do with with a platform that we're lucky enough to have is shine a light on things that that people might see while also, while not just doing that for doing its sake, while also choosing a list that really does reflect like our greatest passions of the year. So I think you did a great job.
4: I'm not harassing you or quitting you at all. <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right, well, Cassie, good. your turn. You got to do the harassing.
4: Oh, gosh. No, I mean, I... I <laughs> So many of the films that I've watched this year are are weird ones. I didn't see a lot of the big films yet. And now I'm getting like the deluge of screeners for all the things that I need to see. So it's it's great to have a list to be able to look at and be like, okay, let me check this out. There comes a point where you accept that you're not going to see some of the things unless you have to cover them in some way. Oh, yeah. And so it's good to have a kind of push like, okay, enough people have talked about this.
3: Yeah. Plus, to you know, to your earlier point, Richard, like something like Shithouse, which you know was meant to debut at South by Southwest, maybe it would have really benefited from like a bunch of buzz coming out of South by or something like that, which is like boosted plenty of other films in the past. And without that. Benefit of festival buzz, like maybe top ten lists are not to inflate your ego uh, more than it already is, Richard. But like more important than ever to to really create these conversations. That you know, that's a, that's a, that's a question we've been asking on this podcast: is like where are the conversations going to be coming from if they're not coming out of on the ground festival buzz? And mm-hmm. so maybe it's these critics' awards that are upcoming, these top ten lists. Like maybe this is where we're going to see some of those narratives start to to coalesce and take form. Uh, more
2: yeah, yeah and, and and to that end, one of the quote smaller films on my list is the number three uh, entry, which is this documentary called Collective um, that's not out yet, but it is Romania's pick for best international feature for the, the next year's Oscars and it's a hard watch it's this it's a documentary about there was a nightclub fire in Bucharest, a terrible nightclub fire in, in 2015 that killed you know dozens of people sixty something people. A good percentage of whom died later in hospitals because the disinfectant chemicals that are you know, solutions that people that the, the hospital staff were using had been diluted quite illegally by a manufacturer who was in the pocket of government and vice versa. And so it's all about a corrupt government reacting to a health crisis <laughs> terribly. Uh, so it feels not only relevant, of course, to the Romanians who lived through it and the reporters and government officials you see covered in the film, but to perhaps other people in other countries whose governments did not respond well, or in fact, responded corruptly to another health crisis. So that's not a cheery thing to watch, maybe with your family over the holidays, uh, or even just, you know, cozy on your own couch by yourself. But it's something that I think has an urgency that maybe would have been lost without those bigger kind of, you know, awardsy party conversations that we're used to having in a normal year.
0: And see, Richard, you give them the option to do that and then watch uh, Let Them All Talk and go on a boat with uh, Meryl Streep and Diane Weiss and Candace Bergen. So it's all about, you know, doing things in moderation.
2: <laughs> yes. Don't take the boat to the Romanian horror. <laughs> take the boat from it.
0: <sighs> yeah, I think as you wrote in your list, it makes you we'll talk about Let Them All Talk uh, later. But uh, the idea of going on a cruise and just like hanging out and being happy about it, it was uh, it was good sci-fi. Um Well, we should uh, pivot to talking about one of the other uh, titles on your list, uh, Nomadland, which came in at number five, Richard. And we've been talking about it kind of on and off since it premiered. Oh, boy, did it premiere at Toronto? No, it premiered at Venice and then Toronto all, you know, virtually, as we all know. It is going to be playing at Film Society at Lincoln Center virtual platform from the f- December fourth to the eleventh, so you know, a, a week. Um and then it's not going to be out anywhere until February as far as I understand it. And that could change, of course. So it's going to have a super limited release. I imagine mostly to qualify for critics awards and to kind of stay in the conversation. Um and it's it's kind of a weird way to work around the academy schedule we're dealing with this year. I'm not nuts about it. I don't want to bash anybody for making what feels like the best choice, but it feels frustrating to me that, we want to talk about this movie because that's when the reviews are coming out, but people can't see it for months when it's all going to be online. You guys feel like there's a better way around this?
2: Well, I mean, I, not to like center myself in this narrative, but like, I think that's where a little bit the, the critics groups influence came into play, you know, because mm. a lot of movies like No Man's Land, which one would think would do well at Critics Awards based on the reviews, wouldn't want to bypass that potential for attention. Yeah. Um and yet you know New York Film Critics Circle some other groups have steadfastly said no we're only looking at movies that came out in the calendar year 2020. We're not extending into January February. So they had to do that kind of qualifying release but then also hold it for Oscars and it's really really tough. So I don't begrudge anyone uh, you know this these tricky scheduling mechanics um especially for a movie like that which is really good and deserves you know as much attention as it can get. But I think there is a chance of a kind of dis- a frustration of disconnect between, you know, film media, film industry and film consumers. Similar to there was, you know, three years ago with Call Me By Your Name where everyone's raving about it, it's winning awards, it's getting rave, re- you know, reviews. Timmy Chalamet's becoming this kind of online celebrity. And meanwhile, people, you know, on the ground who are waiting to see it are like, it's not out in my town until February. Like, mm-hmm. why are you guys talking about it in November so extensively? So, yeah. I worry that Land, among other titles, unlike Mank on Netflix or, you know, whatever else is immediately dropping, it could suffer from a little bit of that, like, almost like alienation backlash.
0: Yeah. And wh- whereas Land is kind of a movie about exactly the opposite, is like the opposite of a coastal elite movie in just about every way, uh, which, you know, makes you wonder if they should be like showing it and like rolling trailers in the Nevada desert or something like that to live up to the ethos of the movie.
2: I think it's a great idea. <laughs> just <laughs> set it to play on a big truck and just drive it across the country. <laughs> yeah, you can get, just catch part of it. Yeah.
0: Follow it in Francis McDormand's yeah. van. Um, so Cassie, you said you you have seen Nomadland uh, and we don't want to, I don't know how spoilery it is, um, but w- where did you see it in the kind of arc of the hype that it's been having? Like, was it uh, when it was playing festivals or did it come to you as being like, this is the movie of the fall, which I feel like is how it's been discussed for a while now. Yeah, I think I was thinking about it
4: around festival time. And then I thought I was going to cover it, but hadn't seen it yet. And then finally saw it more in this fall period, which I think is interesting because I don't know there. I've just, I've ended up watching a lot of films super early in their runs. And then thinking about them later, films like the assistant or first cow or Back background, which is on Richard's list as well. And so it was interesting to have a film that was kind of delayed and in, in even getting the chance to see it, but so many people who were already talking about it. And I feel like I'm interested to see how that works for this film in particular, just because it's Chloe Zhao's first film to really feature a a big name actor and someone like Frances McDormand, who on one hand doesn't fit the bill of kind of a Hollywood star in any kind of typical sense. And so that's why she works really well in the film, um, but who also is beloved by the Academy. And so there's, there's a lot kind of going on with the film, both working for it and maybe in some ways working against it, because it's not, it's not trying to be an Oscar film, uh, even though it has Francis McDormand and David Strathairn. It is its own kind of almost meandering story, which is kind of quintessential for this director. So yeah, it, it's one of those films where, for me, it, it got a little bit lost in some of the other films that left more of an impression on me, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think that's just different films have different tones, and when it comes yeah. to award season, certain things can get more easily lost.
0: It does feel like the kind of thing that would be such a crazy contrast if, like, we had West Side Story out there competing or, like, you know, some other, like, big glitzy movie. But because there's so few mm-hmm. of them, like, Nomadland feels like it gets to, like, be itself more in a way. It's like, here it is. This is Fox Searchlight's big Oscar movie, and it's going to be Francis McDormand with no makeup on in a van, and that's just going to be what it is. And, and it, it kind of maintains some power there.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that, like... In whatever way any of us has have observed, you know, in our Twitter bubbles or, or talking to people on Zoom or whatever it is, the, the way that we've been able to observe viewing patterns both changed during this year, but also kind of almost reified, like re, reconfirmed, is that there is a kind of rolling discovery of certain titles. You know, there is the thing like the Undoing or something that people have to watch. You know, that night on the couch because everyone else is tweeting about it or watching it or texting each other about it. But I think you're right, Cassie and Katie, that like a movie like Nomadland, which is all about meandering and all about exploration and, you know, a rootlessness to an extent, is the kind of movie not to be corny that will hopefully find people at the right time. And sure, the awards attention will will give it that extra bit of urgency. But again, we're talking it's, you know, it's early December We're you know, it's going to be another five months until the Oscars. So there's plenty of time within that for the movie to resonate in the way it needs to. And then award stuff will just be the cherry on top.
0: So we're going to talk about this movie in terms of awards, obviously, because that is what we do. Um, but I do feel like there's this, like, this chance to kind of discover it in February. Like, that, it, it does feel like it, it, it's sturdy in a way to the levels of expectations. And for people who aren't hearing this expectation level setting at all, like, I... I think it's a great movie. I think we all kind of agree that it has that it has a lot to it. So it, it, in some ways I want it to like exit the conversation. I, I don't know what the critics awards are going to do for it. Maybe um, like if Nomadland is going to like basically not exist for most people until February or if it's going to open in February being like critics agree that Nomadland is the movie of the year. Like it, it it's hard to know how it's going to get framed by the time people actually see it.
4: Yeah, I feel like. It's it's interesting because I think sometimes that can hurt films. <laughs>
0: oh, definitely a <laughs> the yeah. critical
4: consensus in that way. Oftentimes it gets overhyped. I see it happen a lot of times with like something like Rotten Tomatoes. It's like people like to film in a moment in time um and then all of a sudden it's like oh it has this amazing critical consensus and then audiences see it and they're like really this film. <laughs> you know and it's <laughs> and it's not an unfair reaction because they're seeing it in a completely different context and with the idea or like with the kind of marketed idea that, oh, everyone agrees this is really good, when that's not really how criticism works, even in the aggregate. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I feel like for me, I I enjoyed my experience of watching the film I and had some issues with it, but I don't, for me, I'm like, oh, I don't know how that's going to, I mean, audiences in general could have a completely different idea about this film um, either way, I think it's great for them to get exposed to Chloe Zhao's filmmaking because I think it has a kind of quality to it that asks different questions, and then a lot of your kind of dramatic feature films are have been asking as of late. So, yeah, yeah, it, it'll would, be interesting to see how that works.
0: I would be really curious to revisit it post-election because I watched it in September when it was at Toronto and it's so much it's not a movie that's like, come understand the people who live in the middle of your country, but it it that's what it does. Like it is about this world of people who like really exist outside of like what you usually see in media and you can definitely imagine like some Trump supporters living at these campsites. And it's so even about it and not didactic, and I wonder. I want. I wonder if I would feel more or less kind of open to that notion uh, now that we're kind of out of the the election season conversation, or maybe that conversation hasn't gone away enough to make a difference there.
2: I do think often about the time that. I brought home triumphantly for Christmas. I think a copy of the Jackie screener, uh, <laughs> and I was like, "This is the critical darling of the fall." And my parents watched it. My sister watched it. And I, I had gone to see friends, and I came back. And it's like, "What did you think?" And they were so unimpressed. <laughs> and I think that like really shook their. Uh, um, faith in my in my critical faculties. <laughs> so I think you're right, Cassie, that that really can sometimes work against a movie. But like, that's, again, all part of the dialogue surrounding it. And yeah, I hope that a movie like Nomadland and many others will have time. I think another one of those could be The Nest, you know, which like some people have seen because it's been on demand or in theaters. But um, that's one I feel like could be pretty alienating to a lot of people, especially in light of its high praise from some
0: yeah, I saw uh, Mike Hogan, who is uh, still out on on parental leave, uh, but tweet that in his house, the unresolved ending of the nest was not quite as popular as the group quarries. had I don't know if he was subtweeting yeah. you directly, Richard, or well, what? But uh, <laughs> it wouldn't be
2: the first time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll have Mike back on when he's back from leave to uh, to throw down about the nest when the when the time comes. Richard, as you, I, you, we'll talk about the New York Film Critics Circle Awards when they're actually out. I believe the vote hasn't happened yet. But, like, do you anticipate anything resembling a critical consensus to actually emerge, like, this month or next month when people vote? Or is it just too weird a year to read any kind of room?
2: I think it's too weird a year, which is really fun. You yeah. Know? Um, I know that there are a lot of New York critics who are really partial to uh, First Cow, for example, but I'm also in the National Society of Film Critics, which is a different vote. I mean, there's some overlap, but there's actually a lot of not overlap. And and so I'll be really curious to see where people go. I, I, I think in some years and this is all probably just part of like award season brain, but like, you know, I think of like. Well, Isabel Huppert is going to win for Elf for like all the Critics Awards, but then this actress is going to win for the Oscars and the Golden Globes and the SAGs, and so these these kind of parallel narratives start to emerge. I don't see that happening here. I mean, there is stuff that we're not going to see, we haven't seen yet. I mean, the, the trailer for this Jodie Foster movie, the more Mauritanian, just dropped, and like that, and that's coming out in February. That could be a thing. Like, who knows? So
0: yeah, so I you think, will miss some stuff inevitably. Yeah,
2: but I think that because of that, because the 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 critics groups are not necessarily really going to align with the Oscars in some ways at all because of scheduling stuff. Yeah, we could see a whole lot of variety, which is, you know, ideally the point.
0: Yeah, I was just looking at the dates for uh, the Critics' Choice Awards, which I voted and Joanna votes in, which won't be until February. Um, Like, the nominations be announced (laughs) February 7th. So, like, there's just going to be this gulf of time as all this stuff happens. So, like, again, like, what narratives can actually take hold or just new ones kind of will exist by march when that oscars actually vote
3: oh wait we're in the oscars a lot now is that what you're saying katie we're as important as the oscars mm-hmm. this year i think so. I, th- I think that's wow. actually what that means yeah great no. great great great
0: we personally you you the two actually. of us yeah yeah Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah exactly yeah, as the thought leaders in the bfc <laughs> yeah, yeah. Got it, got it okay
1: hi i'm jeremy larson the reviews director of
2: pitchfork and this podcast is supported by pitchfork music festival The festival also features diverse vendors, as well as a specialty record, poster, and craft fairs, and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.
1: This message comes from Apple Card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase, every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? What's the right amount of socializing for you? And how do you recharge? Maybe you thrive around people, or maybe you need more alone time. Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H E L P dot com slash little gold men.
0: Okay, elsewhere with uh, movies that will be out soon and it's going to be a lot more widely available. A uh, Sound of Metal comes to Amazon Prime this weekend. Um, Joanna, you and I just wanted to talk real quick. This movie, I, th- I think, is flawed, but um, as someone who's been watching Rose Metal a long time, as I think we both have, I was really like delighted to see it and see this kind of like really committed acting performance that doesn't, it- it's showy in some ways, but also just very like, Human and like yeah. and, and person scaled in a like in the way that you don't often see from like here's an actor going full out to have a disability like it, it it feels a lot more honest than a lot of versions of that story we see.
3: Right, and I think what's what's even more interesting about Sound of Metal is that outside of Riz's performance, which is m- mostly what I want to talk about, the message of this film is not like. How to live with a disability? Um, it's like don't think of it as a dis. Like that's not the philosophy of this film, right? And so yeah. this is about this is about a young man who's a musician, a drummer who ha- suffers profound hearing loss, and between Riz's performance and I think the sound design is also a huge star of this film. Um, mm-hmm. It's a really interesting portrait of. An interior journey because the film often puts you inside his head so sound becomes muffled or there's awful ringing noises and stuff like that and and that you know that's tremendously effective that sound design used in a way that it's not often used to craft the narrative to craft your experience but Rizamed like I the reason I sought out this movie sort of aggressively is I was thinking a lot about the the Best Actor race and like who who we might see in there. Um, I think most people rightly assume that Chadwick Boseman is a front runner in this category. But I was like, how how interesting would it be to have? Just a, a different kind of lineup that we usually have in that category Not entirely. a bunch of white guys, you mean? Not a bunch of white guys. And <laughs> so uh, we're about to talk about a white man, a white guy movie in a bit. But like Riz Ahmed is, has been such an interesting figure for for all of us to watch. You know, he was obviously like made a huge impression in Night Of. But I think this is leaps and bounds, his best work. I think he's incredibly good in this. I agree with you. I don't... It's a, it's a big big journey for a character, and this is definitely, this This movie is entirely on his shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not showy. There's some scenes, especially like there's some scenes where he has to interact with kids, that to me looks entirely like so natural and improvised. So it's not like You know, Daniel Day-Lewis, my left footing through, like, a film or something like that. You know what I mean? It's just, like, it feels really grounded and human and relatable. And um, not to knock (laughs) knock Daniel Day-Lewis, who obviously, like, that's a great performance, but... um, But yeah, this just feels like something else entirely. And I was just blown away by it. I know that, like, not everyone feels the same way about it. But I, and I agree with you, I would call this movie very shaggy. But I just think his performance is really worth uh, praising to the hilt. So yep. that's what I'm doing.
0: Yeah. I mean, a note on best actor, which, you know, we should do a proper segment on it at some point. But, you know, looking at the contenders, like Anthony Hopkins, as we talked about, and Gary Oldman are both, like, very big deals in this category, both former winners. Um, but it is very plausible to imagine a best actor lineup that is Del Lindo, Chadwick Boseman, Stephen Yeun, Riddle. Riz Ahmed and Kinkley Benadir. and that would be totally possible and yeah. incredibly groundbreaking. Great. So we'll see. We'll see. So yeah. So as as I, I hope
3: people. I hope people watch this movie. I really, you know, like if you've liked Riz Ahmed and anything, I I really really recommend it. Um, I at first like I was I started watching it and I was a little like, I'm not sure. This seems like because it's kind of so shaggy, but then I fell into the story and sort of felt like I fell inside his head in a way that was really inescapable. And I just, I was just really, really, really dazzled by him in this. So, and, and I haven't, you know, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't have counted myself like the number one Riz Ahmed fan on the planet. I liked him, but like this to me feels like real growth in terms of what he's capable of. And um yeah, so I hope you, I hope people watch it and, fall in love with his performance as much as I did so yeah and I can't I can't imagine I mean I can't imagine another film being more deserving of a sound design award this year but I'm sure it's. I mean, it might go. I was gonna say it might go to like some big blockbuster. But like, what big blockbusters tenet. are we? <laughs> yeah, yeah Tenant. I tenet guess it'll go to like Tenant. Like, but Sonic like, Tenant. The Tenant tenet sound actually really annoyed me. Um. So you know, I've I would really advocate for this film in that category as well.
0: I always forget you're the world's leading expert on Tenant, having seen it three times. I've seen it three times <laughs> against all odds. I still have not seen it. I didn't
3: <laughs> mean to, but it happened that way. So yeah.
0: Um, okay, well, before we get into Mank, as we keep teasing, uh, there's one other Netflix movie to get into that doesn't open, I believe, until next week. But Richard, your review of The Prom went up today. And um, I don't know, like, you you and Ryan Murphy, anytime you're reviewing a Ryan Murphy project, it seems you'll have something interesting to say. Like, The Boys in the Band was earlier this year. Um and I kind of, to my own shame, enjoyed The Prom, but could not disagree with anything that you said in your review as in basically why it should be taken out back and shot. I don't know if you put it exactly in those words. <laughs> no, but. no,
2: there's no shame in life. Lo- I mean, look, it's whatever. It's just movies. Just make them ups, Katie. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think I just really got hung up uh, partly on the James Corden of it all. You know, he plays this big theater queen, frankly. I mean, you know, like a somewhat faded musical theater actor who he and uh, his pals, including Meryl Streep and Nicole Kidman, uh, descend on a Indiana town to stop a prom from being canceled because a lesbian wants to attend with her girlfriend. Uh, so it's, you know, touching on social issues, all that. Why, if it's a movie about gay acceptance and whatever, would you cast James Corden, who is straight, to play not only a gay role, but a really like swishy camp one, In a way that, like, if a gay guy had done it, I would have been like, yeah, fun. I can be like that sometimes, sure. But, like, with him doing it, it just feels so misguided. And it's a really bad performance. And I think that, like, the compounded frustration with Corden in this and Cats and Into the Woods. I just kind of reached a breaking point. <laughs> it was like, absolutely not. I don't think the rest of the movie is great either. I think that Ryan Murphy films it really bizarrely. There's a Fosse number where he doesn't really show their legs or, you know, their whole body's dancing. It's mostly just from the, you know, shoulders up essentially. And that that's mystifying to me and other things like that. But I seem to be, I don't know. I wouldn't say the minority on this, but like, there are plenty of people like you, Katie, who are skeptically kind of like, eh, it's fun. Who cares about it? And then some people, Variety gave it a rave. So mm. um, like any Ryan Murphy project or at least a lot of them, this one seems to be polarizing both on like just pure enjoyment levels and on more tricky, prickly political issues.
0: Yeah, it felt like it had a lot of the energy. Like, I think I only watched the first season of Glee, but like a lot of that kind of like fun cheerleaders doing a dance move in the gym. But like being an original musical and having like a little bit more narrative coherence just taken from the Broadway play um, made me enjoy it more. I think the girl who plays the main character, the girl who wants to take her girlfriend to the prom uh, was really strong. And Ariana DeBose plays her girlfriend, who's um, she's going to be Maria in West Side Story when that ever comes out. Um, So there's a lot of talent kind of filling out the ranks aside from like the big four who are like up in the middle like I think of the like big main characters like Nicole Kidman like might be the best but they're all kind of like statues in the middle of the story like more than like giving a big performance but as I was saying like like James Corden I think I tend to like his work more overall but like as I was watching it I was like this it, it does it's a weird choice to cast a straight actor in that role in 2020 and I don't know what the logic behind. I and mean, he's obviously he's a talented singer and dancer like he has he's able to do the role but like the the thought process behind it feels muddled.
2: You know, Brooks Ashmankis uh, uh played the role on Broadway. He was nominated for a Tony for it. I know that he's not a big name and probably wasn't enough to for Netflix to foot the bill. But you have Nathan Lane, you have Victor Garber. You could I mean, there are a lot of people who could have done this. And I think that in a bigger sense though, with the Merrill of it all and the Kerry Washington, Keegan Michael Key, and Andrew Rannells, and Corden, and Kidman—it just feels and Tracy like
0: Ullman in a tiny
2: part. Tracy just when you Ullman think the famous in a b- people very are small done, weird part. I just, you know, and this is the frustrated theater fans lament a lot: is that like when you do these like big zhuzhed up star-packed movie versions of the stage musical, there in the in the worst adaptations, there tends to be this feeling of like, look, we fixed it, we made hmm. it more exciting and better, right, right, and it. Really, that's I can't think of an instance when when that's actually true. You know, I'm sure it I'm sure it exists, and um, you know, I mean, but going as far back as like putting Natalie Wood in West Side Story, and she didn't even sing in it. You know, uh, mm-hmm. there's this constant need to like prove why a musical is worth watching by putting big stars in it, and. If the stars can't carry it, either in Corden's case as playing a credible gay man or Meryl Streep's case playing a credible belter like Patty Lapone, who she's kind of her characters modeled after. Meryl Streep can carry a tune, absolutely, but not this kind of tune. Wait, and it just kind of grates on me after a while, you know, and Into the Woods had the same problem.
3: Can I just like join the bandwagon of like, I, 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 I tweeted this uh, um, uh, a month ago, several weeks ago, anyway, whatever. A rare don't cast Meryl in this tweet. I am much the same with James Corden. This conversation around James Corden it drives me up the wall that Meryl Streep is cast in every single movie musical when she is fine. She's like Ricky in the Flash, fine. You know what I mean? Like that's where Meryl is, right? (laughs) But like she's not a huge musical star. That's not she. She fine. Like and actually, I have no issue with her in Mamma Mia because you know what? Like that's Mamma Mia is a jukebox musical, so whatever. But like it seems like if you're gonna do a movie musical. There's just, like, this shallow bucket that Hollywood feels, like, comfortable picking from, and Emily Blunt's in there, and Meryl Streep's in there, and James Corden's in there. And I'm like, that's that ain't it for me. No.
4: Well, this was my problem with La La
3: Land, but no one agreed. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> no, I won't, dis- I won't disagree about that. Uh, at all about that cassie but like uh, but the meryl of it is just like it's every it's every movie musical where's the Mm. role for meryl and i'm like why when she's fantastic and i want to
2: see her in a ton of things but not necessarily in every movie musical i mean the two best arguably musical meryl streep things i've seen are when she sings you know heartbreak hotel or whatever uh, at the end of postcards from the edge because it's unexpected And you're like, oh, this sounds pretty good for Meryl Streep, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I saw her do, this is a huge brag, I saw her do (sighs) Mother Courage and Her Children in in, in the Park in New York, uh, with Shakespeare in the Park, with a new script by Tony Kushner and music by Janine Tesori, who had done Caroline or Change. But it's bricked, and it was supposed to be a little bit janky. It's kind of like Sally Bowles in Cabaret. She's not supposed to sound that good. She's more singing from emotion rather than technique. And it works so well because she can absolutely sing. But you're right, Joanna, that like this kind of lazy, like, well, it's a character of a certain age in a musical. If we're making a movie, let's put her in it. But she doesn't work for everything in the same way that a lot of Broadway actors don't work for everything. You wouldn't. I mean, I would love to see it, but you wouldn't put Patty Lepone in Rent, you know. Right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> oh, maybe you should. Like, but let's. Wait, wait, who, <laughs> yeah. wait,
0: who are you casting Patty? Like, can she be Collins? Like, who are she's we thinking? She's Maureen. What, I was thinking <laughs> Oh, no, <Mark>. she's Maureen.
3: <laughs> oh, Mark. <laughs>
0: Um, I also want to add the musical number at the beginning of Death Becomes Her for the Meryl um, musical oh, filmography, yes. like I mean, the like, like most ludicrous musical but also Broadway so that's kind number of ever. It's supposed to be bad. It's supposed to be ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It has the hustle in the middle of it.
3: I don't have an issue with Meryl and Mamma Mia because that's like a rock musical, and also like Pierce Brosnan's there, so the bench is like <laughs> already lower elsewhere. You know what I mean? And like, and I do cry at the end of Mamma Mia too every single time when she and Amanda Seyfried sing their song, and like, you know, they're 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 not belting, but it's it, the acting of that carries me through and so all of that but like here's my little goldman campaign stop casting Meryl Streep in musicals let her do other things Um well she's in you know. we'll let
0: them all talk which we'll talk about I keep teasing now is the biggest event of December but yeah <laughs> she's she's in that movie which is not a musical But did you see
3: that apparently most of the dialogue in that movie is improvised
0: that seems like a, uh, a classic thrilled. Soderbergh experiment
3: yeah. <laughs> I'm thrilled anyway
0: um so on The Prom, if the idea of a musical in which many people are wearing, like, jewel-toned glitter jackets throughout most of it, then there's, like, dancing that is, like, capably filmed sometimes, um, appeals to you at all. Watch The Prom. It's going to be on Netflix. It's, like, it worked as a balm for me. I watched it in, like, chunks over the course of several days and got to just, like, hop in and out, which might be part of why I liked it. Um, I think I think it can serve a purpose, even if it's... Uh, there we have many flaws as, as we've discussed if
2: you are one of the characters in happiest season
0: <laughs> trying to get
2: your parents to accept your girlfriend show them the prom. show them the prom so it's if a very you, meta season yeah, yeah if you, you
3: enjoyed the gwyneth paltrow episodes of glee mm, then the okay. prom is for you <laughs>
0: All right. Well, let's talk about something that's going to be on Netflix sooner and that uh, the good people at Netflix might rather us focus on for longer. Um, Mank, we have talked about it a lot. It has been, I think, you know, we we're talking about how Land doesn't have all the giant movie competition. I think Mank still is like the closest thing we have to like classic big deal award Z Oscar bait. And it's a black and white movie uh, on Netflix. So take that for what you will. And Cassie, you wrote about the politics of *Mank*, which I think if you haven't seen it might sound strange, but the movie is very invested, not just in like how the Hollywood studio labor system worked, but like the California governor's race of 1934 in a way that I did not expect and knew nothing about. Um, so do you want to just talk a little bit about why, not only you wanted to write about like how it depicts Upton Sinclair, but why that felt like such a, a relevant part of the movie to you and in, in what we're thinking about today?
4: Yeah, I guess the important context for me is that I wasn't that impressed by Mank, but I did think that there was something that Jack Fincher, David Fincher's late father, was doing in the script that seemed to speak to kind of different ambitions in the film that maybe he would have made if he was still around. Mm. Um, And uh, the the story behind it is that David Fincher said in an interview with Vulture that the first script that his father had written um, was very anti-Orson Welles and seemed to really kind of be about, it, it was really Pauline Kale's narrative about Mank, Mankiewicz being the true author of the film and, and Wells having little to nothing to do with it. And then David comes to his father and says, well, this seems a little bit petty, like, you should rewrite this, basically. And his da- his father does. And this is the film he comes up with. So it becomes more political. It it infuses kind of a um, a socialist politic onto Mankiewicz, which he didn't really have in real life you know, he was a very anti-union, kind of ardently against the the Writers Guild. Um, but what it does in the film is it offers a kind of polemic on what Hollywood is and how it reflects our uh, larger power systems and labor struggles in the U.S. And so it felt, to me, that part of the narrative it really seemed to be looking back at Hollywood in a film that seems so oscar baby to be saying, here's what in this industry is so manipulative. Uh, the thing that makes movies magical is also the thing that allows you to exploit labor in this industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also really resonates today in the midst of our politics as progressive politicians, socialist politicians reckon with you know, American institutions that are fundamentally built to prevent any kind of more radical change from happening. So yeah, it's 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 an infused narrative. It's complex and it gets abandoned pretty much by the end of the film. <laughs> but I think it makes the it, it makes Mank for me worth watching because it, it points at I I like, in these kinds of films, I like when when a screenwriter or director takes liberties with the story that actually happened to tell a different kind of story, to to espouse different kinds of ideas, rather than just saying, okay, we have to tell the
2: story of this thing as it happened. Mm -hmm. We were having a meeting a, a while back about trying to figure out Vanity Fair's Hollywood issue and trying to, just banding around, like, what are the big Hollywood stories right now? And one of the things that came up, Cassie, was that, the, the Hollywood story right now is a labor story. I mean, in, in, in so many different facets from, you know, agencies hammering out deals with writers, with the Writers Union and 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 COVID restrictions and, and what, you know, which people on a set now are getting better treatment. You know, why are why are grips getting sick and actors aren't and and, and all those things. Do you see the movie as really directly responsive to that or is it more a history lesson albeit a I mean well a kind of invented history lesson um with some you know kind of thin parallels to to right now
4: yeah I I that's a a hard question I don't know if I'm sure that Fincher is thinking about this because once he said that he was interested in coming out with a cancel culture (laughs) film I was like oh he definitely reads the news and is like very up on everything that's happening probably reads social media too and so reflecting back on the film, that did make me think, oh yeah, I'm sure he's very aware of the conversation that's happening around labor in Hollywood and that his dad already cared about these issues during his lifetime and was very skeptical of how the industry worked. I think that Fincher, David Fincher seemed to be thinking about it in terms of being an artist and you know the compromises you have to make. And But I also think that there's... There's definitely in the film a sense of also the way that women are are compromised in these kind of labor deals in the industry. You look at Lily Collins' character and she has to kind of play the dutiful secretary. And she's and and I I feel that the film in the beginning kind of hints that she's in this weird, precarious situation with this man she can't necessarily trust. And then there's kind of this um, you know, platonic romance that results, which was the kind of thing that Mankiewicz was into.
0: I hadn't h- thought about her as a labor story, that, about that character being part of a labor story, but you're totally right about, like, who employs you and what do you, what do they need from you? What do you need from them? And, like, what kind of trust can you have in them? Um, it's fascinating. Right.
4: Yeah. And, I, you know, it's funny to me. I think sometimes people, people like to graft high-minded ideas onto David Fincher's work when I think that... You know he makes beautiful highly technically proficient films that's that sometimes in their scripts or or through their actors mani- manage to break over into something kind of miraculous but i for him i I see that it's kind of like alchemy rather than something that he's planned. that's just my own viewpoint and i and my own understanding of how films are made you know unless you're somebody who maybe like, say, like a, a Noah Baumbach who's is, who is very meticulously planning out every scene and what everyone is going to say in those scenes and how those ideas connect. It's more likely that those moments that kind of harken back to the, the world or our lives are a result of multiple people's involvement. And I feel like in this case, his father, his father's own journey had a lot to do with that.
0: Mm. Um, well, before we... I want to talk to Joanna about the the women role in labor part of it because she wrote about Marion Davies. But Cassie, like what what was it about Mank that like didn't grab you as a whole? I'm still kind of working out my feelings about Mank, so I kind of want you to tell me how to how to think about it, honestly.
4: Well, I think maybe the easiest way to put it is that Mankiewicz, if you if you ever read um the Richard Merriman biography, this is a guy who was really crazy. <laughs> well, not I don't want to use that word, but he was really out there as a person. He had a lot of Issues, and he kind of, but he was also someone who just kind of flagrantly lived in his problems, and I think the film doesn't do enough to show this. I, I, I something to compare it to that actually does a great job of this is a movie like *Her Smell*. Um, where the whole film, it's almost like, you know, what people talked about the experience of watching Uncut Gems was, which is just like pure anxiety and terror. You're <laughs> watching Elizabeth Moss play this, um, you know, alcoholic, you know, addicted, uh, rock star, indie rock star. And you see every shade of this person's personality, her influences, her, the people who enable her. You see this huge kind of, portrait that is so complex, but also very um, dynamic. And it kind of holds you there. It kind of holds you hostage in the film. That's the kind of person that Mankowitz was. He had this incredible charisma that also put people off eventually. He took people on the rides of their lives, but he also really sabotaged his own life. Um, and the film, I think, almost kind of makes it all a little too polite. Um, it tries to clean it up and refine it too much in a way that I think by the end of the film makes the film feel a little bit lifeless. Even though all of these, you know all of these circumstances historically were incredible. So if they were going to take creative license with the film, they could have done much more with it. Um, hmm. And and that's why I felt like the Upson and Claire part was the most interesting because it was the most willing to take risks it had, it, I think it produced the best scene um, for Gary Oldman, where he's kind of uh, having that political sparring talk at, at the Hearst Mansion, so or the Hearst Castle. Once, once those scenes kind of end, or that plot kind of, that subplot kind of whittles away, you're left with, well, if this was the person he was, or that you're saying he was, then, you know, why are we ending the film with him, you know, accepting his Oscar. I I don't know. Holding an Oscar. Yeah, it it felt very wrapped up in a a very kind of superficial way. And that was kind of what was disappointing to me.
0: So you're skipping my favorite part of the movie where Orson Welles emerges at the end of it. And you're like, I want to watch a whole nother movie about these guys just like fighting in a room, even though apparently that didn't really happen because they barely saw each other. That's true. But like, I mean, here's the thing. Tom Burke is so
4: underutilized in this film. And I think he's like, our next adam driver he's the next kind of he can do anything actor who everyone's going to want to hire and it's funny because joanna hogg who played who made the souvenir which was kind of his first big role said that he reminded her of a young orson welles oh really <laughs> so uh-huh. yeah and then he gets cast as orson Wells. so that's fun
0: fact yeah, I've been running around since this movie and and rewatching Susan Kane a little while ago being like, can we talk about Orson Welles being really hot when he was young? And, and like, everyone knows this, but like, I feel like Mank really brought it to the surface for me.
2: <laughs> uh, Cassie, I should say, Netflix just called and said if they couldn't they use the Tom Burke as our next Adam Driver quote from you.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
4: You'll have to pay me, Netflix.
2: Um, <laughs>
0: Um, okay. So, Joanna, I was teasing you talking about Marion Davies because you have this whole story kind of about her real life and how um, even Orson Welles eventually felt really bad for how she was, uh, she was depicted by Citizen Kane. Um, going back, watching, I think you watched Make and then kind of went back through the Marion Davies backstory. Do you feel like this movie does the justice by her that she has long deserved?
3: I mean, like, it would be even better if we got a hold of Amanda Seyfried, um, Mary (laughs) Davies film, I think, but um, I think her, uh, Amanda Seyfried's performance in this film will elevate Marion Davies' name in a way that it, you know, hasn't been outside of like the constant circular conversations around Citizen Kane in in a long time. And I'm hopeful that it means that people will dig into her backstory. And it's it's kind of incredible. And and like the truth is Citizen Kane really did do damage to mary davies's reputation even though it has been refuted and been researched uh, about whether or not this character of um susan kane in uh citizen kane is based on mary davies there are little details about it like since if citizen kane is a very very transparently based on william randolph Hearst, it, it it stands to reason that you know the 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 blonde uh mistress with Shope's as aspirations uh or wife actually in, in, in Citizen Kane is based on William Randolph Hearst's real life, uh, live in girlfriend, uh, Mary Davies, but, uh, by all accounts, Mary Davies is actually like quite talented. And actually it was William Randolph Hearst's controlling interest in her that stymied her career more than anything else. Um, and, uh, as you say, uh, you know, in, in this piece I put together, I, I found, I'm not the first to find this out, obviously. It's, it's known among many people, but Orson Welles felt so bad about what happened to Marion Davies that he wrote the foreword to her posthumous biography uh, where he tried to set the record straight. He gave an interview uh, like a couple years before he died where he talked about the dirty trick that he felt like they played on Marion Davies. Because even though Mank, you know, um, the character of, of Mank in Mank, played by Gary Oldman, um, and Herman Mankiewicz in real life, like both said, It's not supposed to be Mary Davies in Citizen Kane that didn't change the fact of what the public perception was. And so um, I'm really, I'm really glad that this will give people an opportunity because Amanda Seyfried, you know, we've talked about this before. We will keep talking about it until um, the Oscars are well and done next year. But Amanda Seyfried is, is uh, you know, her performance in this is on a lot of people's minds when they think about supporting actor the supporting actress race. So her performance and thus, Marion Davies is going to be... Uh, they're going to be a conversation for a while. And that makes me really hopeful that people will dig into this really interesting lady who, like was a producer, uh, you know, wrote her first film herself, wrote it for herself when she was a teenager, um, you know, had, you know, real estate plans. Um, when William Randolph Hearst died and bequeathed most of his assets and fortune to her, she sold it back to the Hearst Corporation for a dollar. Cause she was like, I don't really, This it wasn't about the money for me. Yeah. So like this idea of her as like a gold digging, talentless, you know, a a blonde mistress or whatever is, is a, is a wild misconception. And actually like one thing that really kind of got my back up when I was, when I was digging into this is like before, before Mank the biggest conversation I remember there being around Mary Davies was around, uh, the Peter Bogdanovich film, The Cat's Meow, uh-huh. uh, which uh, in which Kirsten Dunst plays Mary Davies, who's sort of like in this, um, tangled up in this love triangle with William Randolph Hearst and Charlie Chaplin, and then there's like a murder. Is that on, about
0: well, the guy who died on Hearst's yacht? Yeah, Thomas Ince, uh-huh. um,
3: the producer who died on his yacht, and some people think it's because Hearst thought he was having an affair with Mary Davies, and that's sort of what Peter Bogdanovich ran with, and it almost felt like Bogdanovich, who was like a huge... Orson Welles acolyte um, was trying to make his own Hearst story or something like that. But I just think, I think Bogdanovich as in many things got this really wrong and, you know, much love to Kirsten Dunst, but I just really don't like that that's been the depiction of Mary Davis. That's been, um, you know, that, that, that Bogdanovich just sort of feeds into and buys into some of the worst gossip that was swirling around Mary and and put it on film as if it were fact and um and so i appreciate that this depiction which is almost almost entirely factual from what i could find the the only thing that seems sort of invented in mank is there's a convert like a conversation late in the film where mary davies goes to visit mankowitz and like sort of asks him to shelve the film not on her behalf but on William Randolph Hearst's behalf, she uh, yeah. shelved this in Kane's script. That seems to be wholly invented, but all the things she says in that conversation, like having to financially bail out William Randolph Hearst er, is true. And the connection she had with Megowitz over their shared drinking problem actually is is sort of was seen as like a big bonding uh, element between the two of them um, seems to be true. And so, and, and this idea that she was this like beloved hostess, everyone loved parties at not, not necessarily just at Hearst Castle because William Randolph Hearst was like a teetotaler and actually like threw Errol Flynn out and like a number of people out for drinking at Hearst Castle. But They she said
0: that her- the drinks at Hearst Castle flowed like glue. Like glue. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you, you were allowed a, one. One. Yeah.
3: As I, as I said in my piece, a surprising source of intel on Mary Davis and William Randolph Hearst is, is David Niven, who wrote like a several, um, sort of juicy Hollywood books late in his career. Uh, some of which, most of which maybe may not be entirely true, but um, a lot of what he wrote about Mary Davis is corroborated. He David Niven had a cottage on her estate, her Ocean Beach estate that... Um, that was called cirrhosis by the sea. (laughs) So like, you know, they were just like having a time, uh, in, in this uh, era of Hollywood and and Mary Davis is really at the center of it in a lot of ways, but not in a lot of the negative ways that have been associated with her. So I'm hopeful that, that, uh, this movie, which is not about her, but I think a lot of people walk out really remembering, um, Amanda Seyfried's performance, will provide some justice that even Orson Welles wanted for this woman,
0: so... Yeah, I don't think this is like a feminist like revival no. of Marion Davies, but I do like the. when you talk about her being a hostess, and I feel like that's something that we think about and like, like somebody like throwing fancy parties for fancy rich people that don't really matter. But I, I think in the kind of extended party scenes, especially an early one, you see what that really means that she is this like sparkling, important presence in the room. She's guiding conversations. She's like accidentally re- revealing government secrets. Um, but it's it's so much of a part of the character's appeal that you like just watch that she is good at parties and you get why she was an important figure, especially because so much of her cinematic work didn't really reflect that about her personality. Like, this is a chance to actually, to see that. And as we said, like, Amanda Seyfried really brings out so much of that.
3: Did uh, Cassie or Richard, did you have any thoughts on, like, how Marion Davies is used in, in Mank at all?
2: I don't know as much of the history as um, as you all do, but I appreciated that it did seem to consider her in a more thorough way, I guess than a kind of lesser vision of what Citizen Kane was all about and its inception and all that. Um, I, I appreciated that. I think my bigger question, well, I mean, first of all, who hasn't died on William Randolph's yacht? I mean, come <laughs> on. But uh, is, you know, this is a movie that both, and this is something I got at when I wrote the film, and I think I was more up on it, Cass, the, the newer Cassie, but, like, is, it's a movie that, like, I think celebrates Hollywood, but also really chastises it both his, you know, in terms of its past. And I think to some extent it's present. I see a lot of Fincher like saying, where are the movie, where are the studio movies like this that used to at least kind of prod at something that meant something to the world versus like superhero stuff or whatever. You know, I see a little bit of that in the film and it shows, you know, Irving Thalberg and not terribly great light nor Louis B. Mayer, not that Mayer's reputation necessarily is that good anyway, but there's a whole Thalberg award at the Oscars. Like, you know, I, I just wonder what, you know, and we're getting, I'm getting cynical here. I just wonder what, like in terms of Academy Awards stuff, what that group of people is going to think about this movie, which does not offer them the fantasy of the artist or, you know, myriad other Hollywood celebratory movies that have done well at awards uh, in years past. So I, I think it's going to be a tricky thing. And I think that part of the reason all of us are having a sort of complicated mixed reaction to it is that I think rather admirably, it does not, it doesn't really traffic in one message or one mood. It feels more like a, you know, maybe not always successful, but more of a sort of interestingly scattered snapshot of of a moment in time and an industry in time.
3: I also wasn't like wholly taken with Gary Oldman's performance in at the center of this film. Um, but I felt that the same way about the performance that won him an Oscar a couple of years ago. So I might be in the minority about that, but like this isn't really you know my own personal doubts about Gary Oldman as a figure we want to like flock around aside like this isn't really the kind of performance that i think is all that interesting i guess which is why i latched so hard to Mina cipher because i felt like her performance was one that i i i thought was really interesting and and kind of nuanced in the film and and what oldman was doing just felt like character to me in a way that is not very interesting to me
4: I I I felt like Gary Oldman was in a different film. He was almost in a film that was more comedic and more, like I was saying before, more dynamic. Like he got a different direction memo than, and and, and even even Amanda Seyfried, I think she kind of, she's playing, especially in these scenes where, or the initial scene where they meet, Marion Davies and Herman Mankiewicz meet. Um, it seems to open up the possibilities of a different film. And then, I don't know, it, it seem, then seems to be out of sync with what the rest of the film is trying to be or what other actors are trying to do in the film. So, yeah, I feel like to both of your points, Joanna and Richard, I it's a film that has a lot going on that maybe, and maybe this is what happens when, two people who are very close to each other work on the same film, but not at the same time, <laughs> which is to say, <laughs> you know, David and Jack being father and son, but one not being alive to see this film made. It, it felt like there were different lives and different worlds contained in the film. But for me, the reason it wasn't satisfying is because none of them Or to put it a different way. I think it can be sometimes an easy move to, to take a subject, and to try to kind of zoom out and to place it into a wider context, but then you have a lot of responsibilities there once you do that. you have to start actually telling a story or you have to have ideas that are coherent, and I feel like even though ideas don't always match up or that truths can be complex and be contained in the same film, for me, it just felt like there was a lack of coherence to to these ideas and that that was reflected a bit in some of the acting particularly in in Gary Oldman's acting
0: we haven't talked about the um the style of the film about how it's kind of made like it's a classic Hollywood movie like with the sound and like there's like the cigarette burns Yeah. yeah they change over the roles which like I think everyone knows about because of Fight Club so there's kind of a meta wink there um like it's it definitely takes a lot of getting used to and I think that kind of explain some of the acting choices there, where everyone's kind of, like, acting as if they are in the 1930s. Um, I kind of wound up embracing it and liking the feeling that, like, this has, like, come as this dispatch from the past, but it sounds like for you guys it might have been, like, more alienating than worth it. I mean, I, I,
3: I don't think that's quite how I would characterize my reaction because I think that... um that the lily collins character i I said this to you katie when i watched it like i love i love classic hollywood i love classic hollywood films i just spent like all of thanksgiving watching like all these hitchcock films um and i think i think that lily collins performance is perfectly tone matched for that effort like i was just i was it's it felt to me like she walked out of an old film i thought she was perfect for that and and to your point about the technical aspects of it, I really admire what Fincher did there. I But once again, I find myself, this is like the third year in a row, I think I talked to you about this off air, Katie, where like I find myself admiring a passion project, the technical proficiency of a passion project that a great, great male director has made for Netflix. Like uh, Roma yeah. and Irishman and Mank are like, you know, Netflix is like, here's your dump truck of money do exactly, exactly, exactly what you want to do. What is your vision? Do it. We're going to run it at the Oscars and there is a win-win. And I have failed to emotionally connect with some exceptions in Roma, like with, I have failed to love those films while I have sort of coolly admired those films. And so like, I admire a lot about make, there is a lot of work and ambition here in terms of, Technical prowess, and as Cassie keeps mentioning, this is also obviously an, a, an emotional project for David Fincher because he's completing his father's longtime work on it. You know what I mean? And so, and and I almost loved. No, I definitely loved reading David Fincher's conversation with Mark Harris in New York Magazine more than I loved watching Mank in terms of like what he cared about in making this film. I just didn't feel that when I was watching the film, but I felt it reading that interview. So I'm glad that he got that experience to do this, but I ultimately Mank is not a film that I'm going to want to like eagerly rewatch, I think in the future. That's how I feel about it.
0: I did rewatch it. Like, I watched rewatched parts of it um, and found myself really enjoying it, like, on a second go-round, like, just kind of appreciating the parts, like, the acting and the way the the, the the characters interact with each other and, like, knowing where the story was going to go. So um, I think it, it, it maybe is more rewatch-worthy than it feels at first glimpse. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's a David Fincher movie. Like, the idea, like, when you don't have an emotional reaction to a Fincher movie, a lot of times you're like, well, this is what I signed up for. Um, but I think... That doesn't mean that, like, it's on us to, like, accept it for this, like, cold, calculating thing that it is, because... I mean,
3: I I guess, but I would watch Social Network literally any day of the week, which is, like, a similar examination of, like, an extremely flawed, quote-unquote, great man, you know what I mean? Like, it's... I I think Fincher has done that really successfully, and I, I, for some reason, I think... Uh, I didn't get there with Make.
4: I don't know. Well, I've heard someone describe Fincher as like a, yeah, he's this supremely great technician, but like, I think maybe Nick Pinkerton said this, but he's very boring. And I actually, (laughs) I I agree with this. I think that it's, it's, it's a Fincher thing where the social network, Gone Girl, those are films that were first and foremost, great texts. That were perfect for the screen, and this doesn't happen very often. And it needed those films needed a great technician to just execute what was so great about the the writing. In this in this case, I think the writing is a very complicated text that, because it's also drawing so directly on tomes that exist, <laughs> maybe required a little bit more than than technical prowess. Like Joanna's saying, it it, le- it leaves you cold because the the technical effort, it doesn't feel so caught up in the actual events. It doesn't feel so resonant in what's actually happening. It just feels kind of like a gloss. Um, or like, you know, I was thinking about Phantom Thread. I, I love that film. And I think that it, it, it's so, it's one of the funniest films I've ever seen. But a lot of people, I don't know, watching that film or or hearing about it, you wouldn't necessarily think that. And it's because the person who made the film or someone like Paul Thomas Anderson it, he of course he can do all of the technical things really beautifully but that's never the point of the film whereas i feel like with a film like this that becomes a point it becomes a thing that stands out the most because there's so much there's so many pieces that are are missing connection or or missing some kind of um yeah like sense of coherence and yeah, when, when you get a bunch of money to make a movie, <laughs> I feel like those blind spots can become actually more apparent the more money you have versus if this was just some kind of small indie. And the, and the fewer people to like say no or ask you to reconsider a choice or something like that. Right, yeah. Or to yeah. be like, okay, what are you really saying here? Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like when an author gets so
3: successful that the, their editors really stop editing them, and this has happened to, like... David
2: Fincher's General. going to Substack. <laughs> <laughs>
3: What <laughs> was to like JK Rowling? Netflix is
2: I,
0: substack for yeah. famous directors. <laughs> uh,
3: to George R. R. Martin, your books get longer and less like you, you need an editor. This is my 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 uh ode to you, Katie Rich. People need editors <laughs> and the Netflix model of like you're you're uh you're a genius director you don't need any like uh, studio interference here's all this money and it's like there's a there's a line obviously you want you, the artist to be an artist and you want the artist to have freedom but it, but an artist needs refining sometimes and in this case i do think that like fincher misses the mark that is interesting your point cassie about the most successful fincher movies maybe being from better source material perhaps and and because I feel bad about even saying like Daniel Day Lewis's name in the same context of like a hammy performance, uh, I will also just agree that I think the Phantom Thread is a perfect film about problematic male genius. <laughs> so, <Wow>. um, <laughs> there you go.
0: Uh, I did not expect to maybe like Mank the best of anyone on this episode. That's uh, uh, no, I, I is, think in, I, I
2: think I think I think I'm I'm more positive on it too.
0: I mean, it's and like it's interesting because there are all these things to critique about it, and then like it anyway. Like it is a rich movie to experience, which is something that, you know, we don't necessarily have as much as we were used to. So I'm so grateful for it existing and for me, i to go back and like watch the parts that I like and then watch those in Kane and go back and watch it again and find the references. And it feels like there's a lot to grab onto, which I'm, I'm happy about.
2: But in conclusion, David Fincher is Glenn Greenwald. <laughs>
0: so, <laughs> I think he's Matt Iglesias. <laughs> yeah, he is Matt Iglesias. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, ev- everyone should watch Mank. Read Joanna's Joanna's piece on Mary Davis, Cassie's piece on Upton Sinclair, and Richard's review of Mank, which was published in November. Like. Pre-election, maybe like truly a lifetime ago. So I don't know. Yeah, November twenty-sixteen. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I I don't know if your feelings on it have evolved since you uh, saw it a while ago. It it does feel like something that the longer you sit with it, the more you learn.
2: Well, we'll see how it plays a third time because it it definitely feels like the movie that my at least my dad, who's an American historian, is going to want to watch when I'm home. Well, maybe virtually home for the holidays. So
0: yeah, maybe this is a a a new segment for some other time. But like I've had a hard time recommending movies to my parents this fall. Like usually. I can kind of send them in a direction. So, like, after Trial the Chicago 7, I've been kind of like, all right, what do, what are you guys going to want to watch? Um, Queen's Gambit. Yeah. Oh, kids <laughs> okay. I mean, love it. Yeah, they, they're always asking for movies, but I should just pivot to television since that's where so much, like, parent I think miniseries count. count. Yeah. yeah. Flight yeah. attendant. <laughs>
2: Probably, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to show them back around and just be like, yeah.
0: <laughs> or collective, just like, here's, yeah. Uh, yeah. here's what's up out there. That does it for this week's show. You can find us at vanityfair.com. As mentioned, reading lots of great things about Mank and other movies and TV shows. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Joanna. You wrote this. And Richard. Rylaws. And Cassie. To Ernest. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the new name for award season goes to Cassie DaCosta.
4: You'll have to pay me, Netflix.